Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the last week of a series called Signs, and as many of you know, during this series, we've been exploring what just might be the most influential book ever written. It's called The Gospel of John. It's an account of the life of Jesus written by a man named John. Uh, John was one of the first people to follow Jesus, and he was one of the first people to believe in Jesus. Uh, there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's is a little bit unique, though, in that he actually tells us he has an agenda for what he wrote. Uh, right near the end of his account, he says this. He says, uh, if we go to the next slide, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now, signs are the word John chooses to describe the miracles of Jesus. Because more than just a miracle in the moment, John saw those miracles as signs that pointed us somewhere, pointed us really to the identity of someone. So many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But he says, these are written, as in the seven that I've selected for you, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John sort of unapologetically, unapologetically says, I want you to come to believe what I've come to believe. And you don't have the benefit of being an eyewitness to Jesus. I did. And so I want to show you the trail of evidence that led me to place my faith in Jesus. And then at the end of it, he would confront each of us with that question that's sort of been driving the series, who is Jesus? Like, who do you believe Jesus is? And it was the sign that we get to explore today that was the one that really changed everything for John. And he believes, and I believe, it has the power to change everything for us 2,000 years later as well, because it, more than any other, points us to the answer to that question. And so with the rest of our time today, I want to unpack how John reports the seventh sign uh, in his gospel. But to get us going there, I really need to give you a bit of context. So a bit of review if you've been with us and if you're new, I just want to kind of catch you up to where we've been. As we enter John's account, the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the city in which the temple to God uh, was built, was filled with energy and expectation. That last Passover in the life of Jesus, Jerusalem was in many ways a powder keg waiting to erupt. And here's why. A short time earlier, Jesus had raised a well-known man named Lazarus from the dead. And as a result, many, many people in and around the city of Jerusalem had placed their faith in Jesus. Um, and not only that, uh, they believed that Jesus was the rescuer king or the Messiah that God had long promised to send to the nation of Israel. In fact, so many people had come to believe in Jesus that it became a threat to the Jewish religious establishment. Their headquarters was the temple and they had an emergency meeting. And so many people were coming to believe in Jesus. They literally said this, this was recorded by John for us. Uh, they said, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then, and here's the problem for them, the Romans, that's the Roman Empire, the global military superpower, they were the ones that were in control in Israel in the first century, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And that seems a little strange, at least to us 2,000 years later, until we realize that Rome had made an arrangement with the Jewish religious leaders. They said, hey, if you keep peace, if you keep the people from rebelling, then we'll let you have your temple and we'll let you have some authority. 
But see, they built a structure right next to the temple called Fortress Antonia, and they looked down on the temple. They were constantly monitoring for any sort of disturbance of the peace. And Jesus, in the weeks leading up to his crucifixion, had emerged as a clear and present danger to that social order. And so the religious leaders really, they, they said, we only have one option. We need to get rid of Jesus. He needs to be eliminated. We need to take him out. And we need to take out Lazarus as well because apparently a lot of people knew Lazarus. Now they knew that Jesus and the disciples would be in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. That's an annual celebration of, of God rescuing the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so they knew Jesus would be there. He was there every year. And that would provide them the opportunity to take him out. A short time later, short time after that meeting, Jesus staged a rather epic entrance into the city of Jerusalem. As he approached the city, he mounted a donkey in order to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. See, 500 years before the time of Jesus, a prophet by the name of Zechariah wrote something that was passed on through the generations approaching the day of Jesus. Here's what Zechariah had written. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. That's another name for Israel. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And so this story had been told that one day God would send another rescuer, a, a rescuer who would become a king. And, and they interpreted that as a, a military leader who would restore Israel to prominence and prosperity on the world stage. And so in the first century, everyone wanted to get rid of the Romans, but they didn't know how. But they held on to the hope that someday God would send the Messiah. And, and the sign, one of the signs they were looking for was that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so as Jesus approaches the city, he's sort of publicly affirming what everyone thinks about him, that he's the one. He's the one God had promised to send. All their hopes are realized and the revolution, the uprising, is about to begin. And so they did something that made a lot more sense in their time than it does to us. They grabbed palm branches. Hundreds of people grabbed palm branches and they race out into the city and they line the road into the city where Jesus is coming and they wave the palm branches, which are a symbol of revolution in the first century. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's time, it's time. God has not forgotten us, it's time. And so Jesus enters the city and they think he may just head right for the, right for the palace or right for a confrontation with the Romans, but instead he goes to the temple courts and he begins to teach for a few days. And followers wait and they watch and they listen for the signal that it was time for the uprising to begin. And, and at one point, uh, one of Jesus' followers, a famous guy by the name of Judas, he runs out of patience and he does something that, well, he heads down a path and he's unaware of where that path would go, but he runs out of patience. He goes to the temple leadership and he makes a plan to have Jesus arrested. Uh, now, he's remembered in history as a traitor, as someone who betrayed Jesus, but I'm actually convinced that uh, Judas, that wasn't quite his plan. I'm, I don't think Judas really believed Jesus was arrestable. If you think about what Judas had experienced firsthand and what he knew of Jesus, he had seen many times where people were trying to capture Jesus and he got away. He remembers the day that Jesus walked on water. He remembers the day that Jesus calmed the storms. He remembers the people Jesus healed. He remembers Lazarus. He remembers the day that Jesus called Lazarus back from the grave. I mean, Jesus had the power of God in his hands. And I, I think Judas is thinking, there's no way anybody is going to arrest Jesus 
against his will. I think Judas was hoping to accelerate the timeline of the revolution. Like it's time. He wants Jesus to be king and he wants Jesus to be king now. And so he quietly makes a plan with the temple leadership to lead them to Jesus at a moment when Jesus is isolated from the crowds. And so a few days later, Jesus celebrates his final Passover meal with his disciples. It's kind of the pinnacle of the the Passover celebration. It's a meal full of all sorts of, of beautiful images. It was a last supper for them, but they didn't know it. Yep, that last supper. And during the last supper, Jesus actually increases the expectations of his first followers that maybe this is the time he's going to be king because he announces a new covenant. And for these young Jewish guys who had followed Jesus for three years and who grew up reading the Old Testament, as soon as Jesus says new covenant, they thought of another Old Testament prophet, this guy named Jeremiah, who 600 years before the time of Jesus had prophesied that one day God would declare a new covenant. He would establish new terms of relationship between himself and people. And it would be very different than the terms of the old covenant. That was the one made on Mount Sinai. See, the old covenant, those conditions were very complicated. There were 613 instructions, things you could do, things you weren't supposed to do. An endless labyrinth of rules and regulations that you had to follow in order to secure God's blessing. But Jesus sitting at that dinner, suggested to his disciples that his new covenant was bigger and broader and better. See, the first covenant just had been for Israel, but this new covenant was for the whole world. And the conditions of the covenant really couldn't have been any more simple. In fact, his followers would soon realize there's really only one command, very easy to understand, endlessly challenging to apply. But sitting there at dinner with his first followers, here's what Jesus told them. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. But, but he's not done. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that was a very different sort of love because they had watched over and over again as Jesus led them with this incredible self-sacrificing love that upended expectations and did all sorts of powerful, powerful things. But as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he goes on to say, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Like, I want the world to know that you are following me by the way you self-sacrifice for them. Love one another as I have loved you. I want that to be your trademark. Well, then after the meal, Jesus and the disciples go to a garden just outside the city of Jerusalem called Gethsemane. And it's there that Jesus is arrested. And he's taken to the Jewish high priest, kind of the head religious guy, where he's falsely accused And then they haul him before the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And they ask Pontius Pilate that Jesus be quickly executed. Like, we we need to get rid of this guy. Uh, His followers believe that he's a king. And you know, and we know that Caesar in Rome, he's the only king. So Jesus needs to be stopped and stopped now. But Pilate listens to the evidence and says, I just, I can't find any reason to execute him. And the temple leadership presses their case and eventually Pilate relents. And so soon thereafter, some Roman soldiers, after beating Jesus, take him to a hill called Golgotha and crucify him. And uh, as John kind of unpacks the events for us, he writes something that that is a a little unexpected. Here's what he says. He says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony 
is true. So John's speaking of himself. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. Remember, John is writing a letter to early Christians who weren't eyewitnesses or maybe just people who were curious about Jesus. And he says, you need to know that what I'm telling you, no one told me I saw this firsthand. I experienced what I'm describing to you. You can trust that what I'm saying is true. And, and, and if I'm a first century reader and I'm curious about Jesus, I'm like, John, that seems a little strange because all you've told us so far is basically there was a rabbi named Jesus who's murdered because he got sideways with some religious leaders. That's not that hard to believe. It's not that hard to understand that Rome crucified another wannabe Jewish king in order to keep the peace. I mean, again, this isn't a stretch. But see, John isn't done telling us what he observed. He wants to prepare us for what comes next because what comes next changes everything. John goes into detail about what takes place shortly after Jesus dies on the cross. And that's where I want to enter his account with you. He says it this way. He says, later, as in later that Friday, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy leader in the Jewish community, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus. This wouldn't have been totally unexpected. Sometimes wealthy people would pay some money to be, have access to a dead body. Um, now, Joseph uh, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So he had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He says, with Pilate's permission, he came and took his body away. John tells us he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus is the one to whom Jesus says the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and here's a fun detail, about 75 pounds. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are going to give Jesus' body a proper burial. If they hadn't, he would have ended up in a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem with the other crucified criminals. But they say, no, we're gonna give him a proper burial. We're not sure about our messianic expectations for him. I mean, he didn't ascend the throne and kick out Rome, but, but he meant a lot to us. And so we wanna prepare, we wanna bury him properly. And I love this detail, about 75 pounds, and it's easy to miss, 75 pounds of things with which to embalm Jesus. And this is an interesting detail because if you think about it, if they had wrapped Jesus' body in 75 pounds, anybody that wondered if he had really died on the cross, well, those fears would have been, or those concerns would have been put to rest because if you're wrapped in 75 pounds of anything, you're not going to survive it. And so John tells us, if you could look at that next slide, John tells us, uh, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And going on, he says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus' body there. John wants us to know that Joseph and Nicodemus were in a hurry to put Jesus' body to rest because it was late in the day on Friday and at sundown, the Sabbath began and then the Jewish law forbid anyone to prepare a dead body for burial during the Sabbath. So they prepared Jesus' body and they put him in the tomb and they sealed the entrance and they left. And meanwhile, Jesus' first disciples went into hiding 
to process their loss. They were confronted with the reality that the last three years of their life had been a waste. They had been so convinced Jesus was who he claimed to be, but now it was over. They were stunned. There would be no revolution. There would be no uprising. There would be no movement. I mean, they had hoped, they had trusted, they had believed, but, but, but that Friday night, they weren't sure what to do. And the sun rose on Saturday morning. They just sat there stunned. I think as they looked at each other as they had their breakfast and they thought, where do we go from here? See, Jesus had claimed too much about himself. I mean, he had some interesting things to say, but when he died, like it, it sort of, it left them unsure of how to move forward, at least until Sunday morning. When they were awakened by a knock at their door. And you need to know, because Jerusalem was a powder keg waiting to erupt, they would have immediately thought that Roman soldiers had come for them, like they had come for Jesus. And then maybe one of them who was a little more awake and maybe had some more coffee would have said, no, no, Roman soldiers don't knock. They kick the door in, right? So, I, so they open the door and standing there is Mary Magdalene. She's another one of the disciples. She's one who'd followed Jesus and she's talking very fast. And I think she's shaking a little bit and she has a message for them that none of them were expecting. Here's what she says. She says, they have taken Jesus out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Mary Magdalene goes on to say early in the morning before sunrise, she had gone to the tomb to pay respects to Jesus. And I think maybe to make sure the guys had buried him properly because they're men and they would not have. And she was confident of that. She knew them, right? And so she had gone and she got there and, and he wasn't where he was supposed to be. So she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Someone stole his body. And before she can say anything further, John and Peter race to the tomb. Here's how John describes it for us. So Peter and the other disciple, that's how John refers to himself, he's doing the third person thing, right? Started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. When John writes this, Peter has already died and he thinks, oh, this is gonna be good, right? So 2,000 years from now in Ada, Michigan, people are going to know that I beat him to the tomb, right? Yeah, it's like the most significant moment in history, and, and John wants us to know that he's faster than Peter, so there's that, right? So John gets there first, and here's what he tells us. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along. Did I mention he was last? He's behind him. That would be, he's number two, and went straight into the tomb. So Peter is always the impulsive disciple. Peter always jumps first and asks questions later. Peter's the one that's the first one to get out of the boat to walk on the water. It's when you, see, when you read those gospel accounts, you see that over and over and over again. So then Peter came along behind him, went straight in the tomb because he's Peter. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And, and, and as they're standing there, I mean, John's outside looking and Peter's inside they start to have this thought, and it's really strange. It's really strange because grave robbers wouldn't go through the trouble of unwrapping Jesus' body. Like, that doesn't make sense. 75 pounds of stuff? You're going to take the time to unwrap? I mean, you're trying to get the body out of there so you don't get caught if you're robbing the grave. And they're standing there, and, and they start to think back, and, and they remember, like, 
Jesus said some stuff that we thought he was sort of doing his Jesus thing and not making any sense, but maybe he actually was making sense. He said things like, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And again, they're thinking he's a, he's a king who's going to take over and, and lead Israel in a revolution against Rome. They're like, you're not going to die? What are you talking about? He, and he's doing that thing again. He's always talking about stuff and we're not following. But they're standing there and they're looking. I just imagine them like holding linens and going, could, he, could it be true? Next slide. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Like even, even like somebody had folded up the cloth that had been wrapped around his head separate from the linen. Like who would do that? He says, finally, the other disciple, and there's a little more humor here, who had reached the tomb first? I mean, Peter went in first, but I was there first, just so we're totally clear about that, right? Yeah. Who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And I just imagine these, these two followers of Jesus just standing there, and in that moment, it dawns on them because there really isn't another explanation. John tells us, in that moment, he, John, saw and believed. In other words, when he saw the evidence, he believed, and his world changed because the resurrection of Jesus reframed his entire life and everything about his life. Suddenly, John realized that everything that else that Jesus said was true too. And because, and I love to say this, because anytime somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, you just go along with whatever else they're going to say, right? I mean, that, there's, there's, no, there's no other proper response to that. And so a few hours later, John and Peter and most of the other disciples actually see Jesus alive again. They're back in the room where Mary had knocked earlier that day and, and Jesus comes among them. But kind of as a fun PS, uh, there was one disciple, a guy named Thomas, who wasn't there to see Jesus, and, and he had questions. John sets up the scene for us this way. He says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, so one of those first disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And in that moment, you have to understand that Thomas still believed he had wasted three years of his life following Jesus. And he had no intention of spending the rest of his life chasing a ghost in a rumor. So he said what a lot of us would say. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands from where they crucified him and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where he'd been pierced by a spear, I will not believe. I want to believe. I, I would do anything to believe. But, but, I, but I can't cross that line without evidence. So John tells us, about a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And I don't think Jesus is scolding Thomas. I think there's compassion in his voice. It's like, Thomas, I need you to know that it's true. It's unbelievable, but it's undeniable. The phrase, the John, John writes his gospel in, in Greek, and the phrase that's translated, stop believing in Greek, uh, is, literally reads like this. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
And this takes us back to John's central theme of the, the whole gospel. He said, well, what's, what's his theme? John wants us to consider the evidence and believe. And so Thomas, Thomas's response is instantaneous. He, he gets it. The lights come on. He says, my Lord and my God. In other words, Jesus, I get it. I get it. I, I know who you are. And I believe. I believe. It's like all of the fog burns off in that moment for Thomas. All of the stuff Jesus said that they thought was really complex metaphor becomes very, 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 very clear. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then, and then as John continues, uh, he records something for people like you and me. See, Jesus knows, John doesn't know, but Jesus knows this story will be told all over the world for thousands of years. And so Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and had yet believed. It's like you've seen it firsthand, so you believe. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen, blessed are the people who hear these stories and come to a place where they believe in me because of your testimony. And then John closes this section of his gospel, this scene, with an invitation for all of us. And it's the same verses that we started with for seven weeks in a row. And so I know you're sick of them. I'm going to read one more time, and I promise we won't come back to them for a while. But here's, here's what John says in the next verse. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. John wants you and I to believe that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be, and that's why he wrote what he did. In fact, and this is, this is for me really interesting to think about, the only reason anyone wrote anything about Jesus was the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have gone down in history as another false Messiah crucified by Rome. And there were others, and you don't know their names, and neither do I. Wikipedia does, if you're interested. Yeah. Without the resurrection, there would be no Bible, and there would be no church. You'd never heard of the Lord's Prayer. You'd never heard the Sermon on the Mount. You would have never heard the story of the prodigal son. The reality is, without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here today. Unbelievable, yet undeniable. And here's what this means for us. If you're a Christian, you need to know that your hope is not in vain. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And when he said that, it meant something. It meant there is life after death, and it meant that you and I will see the people that we loved and have lost again. It also means, and I think John would, John would want us to say this too, it also means that if you've never seriously considered placing your faith in Jesus, you should. Even though you had a bad church experience. Even though the last Christian you, do, you did business with was crooked. Even though you've had countless unanswered prayers, even though you have a lot of questions and find yourself disappointed with God, I think John would want to say to you and I, I get it, but you really need to give Jesus another chance, not because of what he taught, but because of what he did. 
When he died on the cross, we all thought it was game over. We all unfollowed Jesus. And then three days later, everything changed. And we spent the rest of our lives telling everyone we could about Jesus. As we land the series today, we have the opportunity to take communion together. It just feels so appropriate after the content that we've just journeyed through. And so the band's going to come and they've prepared a song. Um, there are stations uh, around the room. And I would encourage you just to take a moment uh, to consider the cross, to consider the resurrection, and then come. You don't need to be a member at Keystone. We just ask that you have placed your faith in Jesus, that you believe that his death on the cross was for you. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread at that last supper and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body, which will be broken for you. Then he held up a cup and he said, of, of wine, he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said to them, when you do this, I want you to remember. So he gave us a gift. For thousands of years, Christians have been returning to that common table to take a bit of bread and to dip it in some grape juice and just to remember how much we're loved. To remember the cross and to remember the empty tomb. So the band's going to play. Just take a moment. Feel free to come and then I'll close us in prayer. Thank you.